Hello, everyone. You're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Weeds podcast. My name is Monica Jean. I am a field crops educator based in the Saginaw Bay region, and we are here today to chit chat about the climate and how that is impacting production and, and what future production uh, would look like if we continue on this, this beautiful line. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not so beautiful, but this line of, um, of the change of our climate. And so I'm here again with Sarah Franzak. And Sarah, do you mind introducing yourself? I'm Sarah Franzak. I'm an environmental management educator with Michigan State University Extension, and I'm based out of Hillsdale County, but I cover the whole state, and I help farmers make good environmental decisions on their farms. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm BJ Bowley. Uh, It's going good. Uh, So, yeah, I'll say a little bit about myself. I'm a PhD candidate at Michigan State University here in the Department of Geography, And I'm mainly studying climatology, so our climate, where it's been, where it's going, and how that's changed within that period and how that impacts nitrogen leaching and field crops and all the stuff that we really care about on the ground. So we commonly talk about or or put, I would say, put this whole climate thing into two buckets. And that's like adaptation and mitigation. Um, Can you kind of explain what those are? And, uh, you know, what's going on with it? Yeah, so adaptation and mitigation, they're two terms that really get thrown around a lot. Sometimes you'll see them in the public press. Sometimes you'll, you know, see them in academic literature. But to kind of separate the two, adaptation are things that we have to do to adapt or change our systems to respond to change that is happening or going to happen, like it's guaranteed. So it's things we can do to lessen the impact of what's going to happen tomorrow, whereas mitigation is really taking steps today to prevent something out in the future from happening. So in the case of climate change and global warming, we really talk about reduction of greenhouse gas emissions as one way as a mitigation strategy rather than an adaptation strategy. An adaptation strategy, say for agriculture, would be increasing ground cover to reduce soil erosion during non-planted seasons, things like that. So sometimes you have to buy bigger pants and go on a diet. Is that kind of what you're saying? Sometimes. Yeah. 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 So, cause it's in climate speak, we, you know, we talk about normals and averages. So what things are normally like, well, really we exist in the extreme. So you think that bigger pan has to catch what spills over from the little pants sometimes. Right. Right. So on like the timeline of climate change, where are we at? Like, are we, in adaptation? Are we in mitigation? Like, is there kind of a place you can put your finger at? Or how does that work? Well, it's it's a little more complicated. It depends on what system you're thinking about. But in terms of global climate change, so we're going to go up from Michigan, Great Lakes to the planetary scale here. In terms of global warming, um, we've emitted enough carbon dioxide, different greenhouse gases to continue warming the atmosphere at about the same rate out to about mid-century regardless of what we do for emissions in the short term. So we're going to have to deal with that stuff that's already baked in, in terms of mitigation or adaptation. So that would be one example there. So on a timeline, we're in the thick of it. Um, If we follow along the emissions 
scenario. So how much carbon dioxide, different gases we're putting out. If we continue along that same line we're on now into the future, that's what we're looking at. It's There's not much else we're going to be able to do up till about 2050, even if we cut off emissions, say, in the next couple of years. There's still some that's baked into the system and we're going to have to deal with it. I feel that, right? Because like we are already adapting. We're getting larger equipment because our planting windows are smaller or harvesting equipment because our harvesting windows are smaller. We're trying to come up with ways to either water the the ground because we're not getting enough or or get the water off the ground because we have too much. I mean, so yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my own research, one thing that I'm really interested in kind of pursuing with this nitrogen leaching modeling we're doing is actually field workability days in the spring. How have these precip changes and trends we've done affected that and quantify that? Maybe we can even model it to get a kind of more spatial picture. So lots of things to look at. So what we're doing now is adaptation, but we we need to, well, well like you said, uh, there is still mitigation here, like in the future that needs to occur as well. Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're, they are, they do overlap to an extent as well. So think of, ag, I'm, I'm going to use field crops because that's what I've been working on the last few years. But in field crop systems, if you increase ground cover, plant cover crops, intercropping, increase seeding densities, things like that, you sequester more carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere, uh, depending on how it's used, whether it's re-emitted or not, you know, that's down the line, but it's in that plant material and not going in the atmosphere. That's also, it's a mitigation strategy because it's tying up carbon, but it's also an adaptation strategy to deal with more intense precipitation, wetter springs, things like that, because it reduces soil vulnerability, slows infiltration of water. So things can have a dual purpose as well. It's not one or the other. So how did we get here? Like, um, we have this climate change issue. Um, we're trying to work on these adaptations. Um, how did we get to this place? I mean, it's, it's really, you're shooting at a moving target in a way with the science. Um, you know, we didn't know a lot of these things a couple of decades ago. Climatology as itself is still a relatively young field in terms of science. And, you know, so we're learning as we go along, but fundamentally it's mainly driven by anthropogenic or human, uh, sources of greenhouse gas and emissions. And those don't always come from cars or factories. They can come from the ocean. They come from farm fields. They, they come from a lot of different sources, which is why it's really a wicked problem. There's yes. no one magic bullet for all this. All right, so what about field crops producers? What can they do to mitigate some greenhouse gas releases? Well, greenhouse gas emissions for field crops, I mean, if you do a full inventory, you know, seed production, tractors, all that stuff has a fossil fuel footprint. So, you know, producing seed, packaging it, shipping it, that's all part of it. Not necessarily an individual producer is going to be able to do much about that. But what they can do is, you know, tillage operations, do them at an appropriate time, plant cover crops, work with extension, work with specialists, um, farm consultants, anyone really to reduce environmental pollution from fertilizer runoff. And really it's just about increasing profits and increasing resiliency to climate weather extremes at the same time. So just trying to find that balance. Could you tell us a little bit more about the different strengths of greenhouse gases? Yeah. So, I mean, greenhouse gases is what we hear about. I mean, the 
the 800 pound gorilla in the room we talked about is carbon dioxide. It's the, it's the largest uh, share of the greenhouse gases that we emit. And so really when we're gonna talk here about these other greenhouse gases, we're gonna tie it all back to that with carbon dioxide. We're gonna call that a global warming potential of one. So it's gonna be baseline. So when we think about carbon dioxide, we'll think of that as a one. So carbon dioxide really makes up about 80% of the uh, US emissions in 2019 is the latest estimates that we have. So that's by far the largest, but there's also a couple others that, you know, the EPA as they classify and we're concerned about. So it's methane and then nitrous oxide is another big one. And then there's more industrial fluorinated gases that have huge greenhouse warming potentials, but they're a relatively small amount of the story. So when we talk about methane, which is more something we do associate with agriculture and animal agriculture, that actually has a global warming potential of about 25. So it's about 25 times stronger than carbon dioxide by itself. So that is one that even though it's not the majority of our emissions, we do want to be concerned about it because it is so much more potent. Building on top of that nitrous oxide, which is something that does come from field crop systems that I analyze, denitrification. So when you have wet conditions and water sits there and there's anoxic conditions, you get nitrous oxide emissions. And that one is about 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Uh, so there we're really dealing with smaller emissions having a, you know, a very much larger effect. So really looking at all of these gases as a whole is important rather than just focusing on carbon dioxide emissions. If we want to talk about fluorinated gases, those would be something similar to like what we talk about with the ozone hole back in the late 1980s, 90s, when we signed a protocol to reduce the production of these gases. Those are often on the times of thousands to ten thousands of times more powerful than carbon dioxide alone. So we do want to watch those as well, but for agricultural purposes and day-to-day, -day, the three big ones are carbon dioxide, methane, and then nitrous oxide in that order. So if we're looking at then, it, let's, I like to switch around, make it, a, make it a positive as much as possible. The mm -hmm. opportunity that agriculture has, right? Like we are a contributor, but we also are uniquely situated to draw down and improve on things. When we talk about opportunities, we talk about carbon a lot, right, with carbon sequestration, but we also have an opportunity to, to improve on methane and nitrous oxide. So could you talk about um, what, what we can do in agriculture? Yeah, sure. Um, methane, I'm, I'm not as up on that one, so I'm not going to touch it. But so there's a lot of literature out there on uh, media, remediation and mitigation of methane emissions, but say for nitrous oxide, it's really about, and it gets complicated because you're dealing with inorganic nitrogen and organic nitrogen, the nitrogen cycle all at the same time, all these things pinging back and forth. But really, um, we can mitigate nitrous oxide emissions through reduced tillage or different, you know, minimal tillage practices, uh, ensuring that we don't over fertilize our crops. So there's not an overabundance of nitrogen in the soil, things like that. And also in wet fields, uh, you know, areas that are prone to ponding, if drainage hasn't been installed already, you know, installing tile drainage could be one way to reduce that emission because really those nitrous oxide emissions are all coming from when that soil is really wet and really saturated. So that's one area that producers have a unique opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one impact. Yeah. And then not only that, in this, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing fertilizer prices just skyrocket right now. <laughs> yeah. I Absolutely. mean, re retaining nitrogen in our fields seems like something we want to do anyway. Um, and so given that a thought, like, hey, maybe we 
you know, don't put nitrogen in the pothole that's in the middle of the field, right? You know, that wet hole that every field has, you're just like, I was just going to drive through this anyway. Then just don't put nitrogen there. Like, yeah. Or use a product like ESN, right? Like try to use something Mm -hmm. that's going Mm -hmm. to preserve it or change your application. Now we're getting into 4R. And so things to try to conserve that nitrogen as much as possible Mm -hmm. is both good for your pocketbook and good for our atmosphere. Look how that absolutely. And it's great for your corn. If you apply nitrogen closer to the time that it needs it, you're just going to be way more uh, accurate and you're going to save money. Like everybody wins on this. So So, (laughs) shameless plug, you know, look at 4R, look at max return to nitrogen ratio. You know, those like, look at those, some of those things. So yeah, no big deal. (laughs) So, uh, so we're looking at like agriculture in general, but for Michigan specifically, um, what do we think like production in Michigan will be like in the next, I don't know, 15 years here in Michigan or even farther than that? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, nobody has a crystal ball. Nothing's perfect, but I would say there's two answers to that question. 15 years, that that's a pretty short window. Um, when we look at climate change and climate projections, that 10 to 20 year time frame, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So really probably your best strategy for the next 10 to 15 would be look at the historical trends, look at what we're seeing. So we're probably going to be dealing with wetter springs and wetter falls, uh, maybe not so much in the summer, Um, because that's kind of been the historical trend. And then also more precip in the winter. So more precip during the cooler months, uh, potentially warmer overnight temperatures in the summer. That's one thing we have been observing historically. And looking out to the futures, the models suggest that that trend is going to stop. So we'd see daytime highs going up in concert with minimums into the future, but we haven't seen that reversal of the trend in the observations. So in the near future, expect that daytime, nighttime temperature range to actually come down a little bit more. Um, So you're going to be dealing with a more humid environment, probably a little bit warmer in the summer, definitely warmer in the spring, fall and winter than it has been historically, and really look for more rain, but that's really going to be coming in the fall, spring and winter, and maybe more intense events in the summer, but that's harder to predict. It actually doesn't sound so bad for agriculture. I mean, more rain, warmer temps. I mean, seems like something we could adapt to. Um. I mean, here in Michigan, I mean, if you think about it, historically, we're kind of the Arctic tundra of corn production in the Midwest. We're the, we're the northward edge. So for us, yeah, there are some benefits from it as well. So these longer growing seasons, we, we could potentially increase corn acreage as long as soils and other conditions permit. But there are there are downsides to that as well. It's you know, we do do need to look at the positives, but there's also challenges that come with a warmer, wetter environment for agriculture. Oh, when I think about um, the amount of food that we grow in Michigan and Mm -hmm. then also like you're talking about the corn belt shift, right? Like it's sort of shifting north and there's going to be more pressure on places that have never grown corn very successfully to grow corn successfully. And uh, my concern um, is kind of in a more like soils framework is like, Iowa's great at growing corn partially because their soil is like A plus soil, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Northern Minnesota, not A plus soil. 
I call um, it glacier crap. Great. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a great. Uh, That's a good term, actually. Mm -hmm. Three-tiered soils, all sorts of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of like to call it like riddles sometimes. I see that in soil definitions, but really mean it's like, it's a riddle whether it's going to produce anything or not. That's the riddle. Um, so is this year going to be good? I don't know. <laughs> so, I love uh, it. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm like, I, I guess I'm thinking like Michigan's going to see a lot of pressure to produce food in a way that in, in an amount that it's never produced food before, probably. And does our soil um, even have that capacity? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Those, that's those are concern. all, those are all good questions. And I know there's people working on, on those exact questions and research. So, you know, people are asking those questions and it's more than just here. So I'm yeah. sure we'll be starting to see that coming out. I mean, one of, one of the things with Michigan as well is the diversity of our agriculture as it currently is, is pretty remarkable. I think the statistic is we're second most diverse agricultural economy next to California in terms of number of yeah. crops. Grown. We're number two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a cool <laughs> place to be um, coming from the Great Plains. That's where I got my degrees. So the diversity here is pretty outstanding. So I'd hate to see that go away with some of those pressures as well. So, mm -hmm. and those perennial crops, as, as our list, as your listeners probably do know, those have a whole bunch of different challenges year to year than field crops as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like we said before, it's, it's complicated. There's no magic bullet for any one of these things. Yeah. You were also touching quick on like other issues we could have, um, because of the weather. And so I want to talk a little bit like humidity is something that's probably going to increase. Right. And like substantially in 15 years, maybe not, but in the, that 50 frame will probably be quite a bit more humid. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this is, you know, I can get into a little bit. I mean, it's, it's fundamental, it's physics at that point, you have warmer air, it can hold more water before it has to fall out. So the warmer that atmosphere is, the more water it can pick up, the more water it can hold. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that we're seeing this already in the observational record. Uh, one downside of climate records is that we haven't always had dedicated climate observing systems, so dedicated stations for the purpose of climate. So the instruments have changed that we use to measure humidity. So there's not a good instrumental record that we can do trend analysis on because the instruments are just so different. But there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that we are seeing more humidity during the summers. So that's one thing that could be contributing to those lower over or those higher overnight low temperatures. So it's not getting as cool at night because there's more water in the atmosphere. So that dew points higher. So anecdotally, we are seeing that already. And that's just projected to continue out into the future. So yeah, so my concern is with that humidity, you know, is disease pressure and something like tar spot that could, so, could be so devastating. Um, you know, we, and things that we don't even know of yet, right? If our, if our climate continues to change, we could be developing issues that, uh, that we don't have a treatment for, nor do we struggle with at the moment. And, and mm -hmm. another one I think of too, oh. is increased wind events, like high winds. Is that? Yeah. Wind is a whole nother can of worms. I did my master's thesis on the, on wind modeling. So, um, that's a, that's another, uh, barrel we can open later. I wouldn't be able to say much about wind events out in the future, but um, in terms of humidity, things like tar spot, um, 
So tar spot's a good example of a new pest or a new disease that we have in our region that um, hasn't been here before. It was traditionally thought of as uh, a subtropical or a cool tropical plant disease. It was usually in Mexico, Central America, more Southern regions. Uh, but in 2019, it showed up in the Midwest. So there's a lot to learn. Um, but one thing we can say that maybe climate may be contributing to that emergence here because we are seeing these more humid conditions, those warmer nights, uh, less hot days, things that would kill off that pathogen um, aren't happening as much. So they're more it's more likely they're going to stick around. Um, and that's also another kind of interesting point. Sorry to go off a tangent on this, but with tar spot, um, as far as I know, the reading I've done on it, it was traditionally thought that overwintering would kill it off. Um, like with the winters we experience here in the Midwest, that's not happening. So we're trying to figure out why. So it's a evolving thing. Um, to touch on the humidity part, to circle back around again, a lot of the things we're talking about with more humid conditions, longer wet leaf periods, are really associated with that same time period where we've seen that difference between the daytime high temperature and the low temperature get narrower. So it's not getting as cool at night and it's not getting as hot in the day. And that's what we've seen in the summers in the Midwest. So our summertime highs have been mostly flat or slightly declining. And it's those type of conditions where you see these increased disease pressure because there's more water on that leaf for longer mm -hmm. and more avenues for it to travel projecting out in the future, I touched on it earlier, that's one of our questions. Is that temperature trend where we see that diurnal temperature range, the difference between max in the daytime and minimum at night, get narrower, stay the same, or is it going to spread out? Okay. And the models show a lot of some uncertainty around that. So okay. that's something we're going to be watching and we're working on to figure out just why that's happening. Right. And a lot of the stuff that I work in is more about erosion and water quality and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we're really concerned about intense rainstorms causing erosion. We touched on the loss of like nitrogen because of these stronger storms and flooding. Um, we've talked with um, Dr. Safferman about the loss of phosphorus because of some of these strong storms and erosion. And um, so we already are seeing uh, stronger storms, more intense rainfall, and and some of the repercussions of that. Um, you know, there were just in the county that I live in, um, we saw huge uh, storm events accompanied by like straight line winds and tornadoes that we haven't had in years and years and years. Um, so I know I know that's just like oh that's one a one off year, Sarah. I get it. <laughs> But um, I think that we're starting to see intensity. Um, and I guess, uh, I don't know if I, uh, um, if you want to like respond to that, but I don't know what's, what, I didn't really ask a question. No, no I, I think I get what you're getting at though. So with, yeah. So you were talking about potential for increasing storm intensity as we move into the future. And we've experienced some already just to summarize, right? That, that yeah. is exactly what I was talking yeah. about. And then that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good observation because there is anecdotal evidence that we are seeing more intense and more frequent storm events in the summer. So these heavy rainfalls where you do see more erosion, things like that. Um, people are saying that we are seeing them because we are. Um, the statistics don't lie on that one really. But um, no single event is attributable to climate change. Um, so I have to put that statement in there with my climatologist hat on. But 
we are starting to look at the frequency and you know how often these events are occurring and they have been in recent years occurring more often and the models that we have um you know modeling severe weather is difficult but they do suggest that that trend is likely to continue um so during severe weather season events will likely be more intense uh maybe not more frequent but that intensity part is really part of the story in times of intense rains practices like cover crops become really important when mm -hmm. you need to hold your soil in place and it sounds this cover crops come up a lot in this conversation as a really good adaptive practice um and now monica i know that you and i have looked at certain adaptive practices um uh that agriculture can can do to sort of uh, deal with some of these issues. Um, one that comes up a lot is irrigation. Um, talk about irrigation quite a bit as a creating microclimates. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know if you wanted to maybe talk about some of those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, land use, land cover change. Again, it's a very ongoing area of research, but there is some evidence that out there that the amount of corn and soybeans that we've been planting in the Midwest does modify. It definitely modifies the local climate. That's the whole study of microclimatology, but it does affect larger scales than we previously thought. Um, there's some good evidence that that is indeed true. So what we do on the land surface does affect the larger environment and that can in turn have an effect on the weather. To what magnitude that's cannot say yet. That's for further study. <laughs> Cool. Can you just touch on like what, what's impacting our surroundings, air quality, water quality? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. First, I'll address some of the issues that we usually talk about with agriculture. When we talk about water quality and the air quality and the surrounding environment, a lot of that has to do with nutrient pollution. Um, so nutrient runoff, nutrient leaching. Really, the goal there is we just want to keep that nutrient where it's applied until it gets taken up by the plants. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. So as producers, uh, as extension specialists, as researchers, we need to find ways that producers can make an economic return on their, on their crop, but still keep those nutrients on the field. Things like buffer strips, cover crops, precision application of nitrogen. We touched on that a little bit. That's where some of my research goes and modeling that different positions in the field and where and you should and shouldn't apply fertilizer, depending on rainfall and acidic conditions, all that stuff. But yeah, we could, as producers, that's probably one of the bigger things we're concerned about for water quality is nutrient pollution. So nitrogen, phosphorus, um, runoff or leaching. Um, in terms of air quality, um, you know, during harvest, we can kick up dust, things like that. But I, I'm not, I don't think that's a huge problem on the larger scale. But uh, as far as air quality and climate change, um, those are things we do have to watch. I'm not going to speak as agriculture producer here, but in general terms, air quality, things in urban environments, ozone becomes a contaminant when you get these warm summertime temperatures and, you know, sticky air, and it just creates a lot of respiratory problems for people. That's something that we're starting to see some more of and need to watch that as we move into the future, um, as well okay. as uh, smoke from wildfires. That's something we've seen the last few summers. So, you know, you notice the last few years, we've seen quite a bit of smoky summer evenings, red sunsets, might be a little, you know, hard to breathe, congested. That's wildfire smoke from out in the Mountain West and up in Canada. So, you know, if that, if climate trends continue there, that's something we might deal with more on a frequent yeah. basis year to year. 
Uh, and coastal flooding. I mean, I know that we've, I know that we don't always think of ourselves as a coast, but um, Michigan has a lot of coastline. And the idea that we might have coastal flooding in, in our cities, like Detroit, we already see some of this. Um, but um, also in like rural areas where um, they're at the mouths of rivers or something. And so we see these smaller municipalities getting kind of flooding and issues like that. Um, and then flooding has its own set of uh, problems, right? There's waterborne diseases and things like that that can really infect, affect people's health. Um, so with climate change and these stronger storms, we also have to worry about those things too, because we all live in a community, right? Like, right. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, even if you're in the, like, the middle of the nowhere farming, you're still getting your inputs from a town, right? You're, you have an elevator, you're taking your crops someplace, right? All of those things are working together to make your business run smoothly. So, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, we're all in this big old rock together. <laughs> That's well, right. Say, a rock in a hard place, right? Um, well, I think that that pretty much sums up the whole issue we have here, rock in a hard place. Um, and I just want to link it back. Sarah kind of touched on it being a community thing. So as far as this adaptation mitigation, uh, we're, we're all in it together. And so we're going to have to figure out um, as farmers, but as community members and uh, just as, I guess, you know, citizens of the world, how we're going to adapt and work to mitigate also. So, you know, carpool, buy some, do some recycling, right? These are things. <laughs> those those and, things uh, all are important. We can, um, we can all play our part. <laughs> and yeah, some bigger changes are going to be needed too. But yeah, everything you can do, every little action helps. Yeah. Well, thank you, BJ, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, we hope to have you on again and we can discuss some more climatey things. All right. No, my pleasure. Thanks again. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.